Okay, thank you for uh, turning up to this, uh, this session. Uh, schooling in Britain, the pros and cons. Uh, before we start, um, just a little announcement. Um, for the late arrivals, day trippers, etc., uh, just a gentle reminder that you may still want to register if you haven't done so already. Um, also, there are still some sleeping bags available um, if you require some. Um, this evening's session, uh, we'll have three sessions, inshallah. Uh, the first one is by Dr. Makadam. Um, he'll, be he'll be going first. Uh, he's the chairman of the Muslim Schools UK, uh, also the principal of Leicester's Islamic Academy, and a Muslim representative of various government uh, bodies. So, inshallah, this should be a good talk. Uh, okay, I'll hand you over now. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nasta'afiruhu wa nu'minu bihi wa natawakal alayhi. وَنَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنْ شُرُورِ أَنفُسِنَا وَمِنْ سَيَّاتِ أَعْمَالِنَا مَنْ يَحْدِهِ اللَّهُ فَلَا مُذِلَّ لَهُ وَمَنْ يُذْلِلُ فَلَا هَادِيَ لَهُ وَنَشْهَدُ أَنْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهُ وَحْدَهُ لَا شَرِيكَ لَهُ وَنَشْهَدُ أَنَّ سَيِّدَنَا وَمَوْلَانَا مُحَمَّدًا عَبْدُهُ وَرَسُولُهُ صَلَّى اللَّهُ تَعَالَى وَعَلَى آلِهِ وَصَحْبِهِ وَبَارِكَ وَسَلِّمْ أَمَّا بَعْدُ Mr. Chairman respected scholars Brothers and sisters in Islam and in humanity. First of all, I'd like to th thank the organizers, particularly Brother Abu Mutasir, for his kind invitation asking me to come and say a few words on education on this wonderful occasion and gathering. I pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that may He accept the words that I will say, and may he give us a tawfiq to understand and to implement what is good for us and our children. Ameen. I shall keep my talk, and I stress the word talk, it's not going to be a speech, brief. I'd like to point out some factors, and I hope that it will generate some discussion. And out of that discussion, I hope some th action will come that will benefit us all, inshallah. Let me then start by providing a context. Many of you will know that it is the legal responsibility of all parents to have their children educated in this country. And that starts from as early as five, it's getting even earlier, right up to 16. And there's now talk and discussion about extending that to 19, the 14 to 19 curriculum Although it's not a law, but there is some talk in government circles about increasing that age from 16 to 19. The methods of education are, of course, the normal schooling, whether you send them to state schools or private fee-paying schools, or if you opt for what is known as homeschooling. The definition of a school is also provided. If you have five or more kids, coming together for the sake of, for education, then that is classed as a school and therefore is subject to the laws that govern schools in this country. The regulations require all schools to promote spiritual, moral, cultural, social, mental and physical development of all pupils at school and to ensure 
that the schools comply with these regulations, the government has charged the HMI, or Ofsted as they're known, to go and inspect all schools, including the independent fee-paying schools, to ensure that they're complying in the sense that they are putting forward a broad and balanced curriculum that would develop all these aspects of the young child or the children in school. Although the regulations are provided centrally by the government, the fact that schools operate in diverse and different communities with different styles of management and leadership and different communities, different aspirations, economic backgrounds of the people that come there inevitably result in the schools having very different ethos, educational environments, etc. So, what is considered as pros by a group of people, one group of people, is considered to be cons by another group of people. The title that was given is to look at the pros and cons of Islamic and state schools, a comparative study. What I would like to do is that given this diversity, I would like to avoid picking up specific pros and cons, and rather I would like to focus on some fundamental principles and then leave it to the very knowledgeable audience to evaluate the schools that their children go with that kind of a knowledge, inshallah. Let us now move from the context to the principles. I have actually chosen a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, which is related by the great scholars, Imams Bukhari and Imam Muslims. May Allah be pleased with them. And it is narrated by a great narrator, a companion of the Prophet ﷺ, Abu Huraira. And he said, The Messenger of Allah said, There is no newborn child who is not born on the fitrah. It is his parents who make him a Jew, a Christian, sorry, a Jew or a Christian or a Magian, just as beast is born entire in all limbs. Do you find amongst them maimed? Taking this hadith as a, a starting point, let me identify certain fundamental principles which will inshallah allow us to build our knowledge so that we may be able to evalu evaluate the education of our children, which is far, far more important than anything else for them. First, fitra, the meaning of it. According to most scholars, it is what is a natural and perfect disposition to worship the one God, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That this fitra within the child is not an immutable quantity, it is in every sense open to change and can be changed. Hence the hadith says about the parents who would change it. Number three, the agents of change are the parents themselves. Number four, in order to make this change, in order to bring about this fundamental change in the child, there must be a process involved which is open to all parents, and all parents engaged in this process, and as a result of which, the child becomes from the natural, either remains on the natural fitra, or 
moves away from it to becoming a Christian or a Jew or a Megan or even a secularist along with other isms and so forth. Brothers and sisters, what we have to understand is the process. What is this process? And how can we ensure that this important process through which our children go ensures that they remain on the fitrah, that throughout their lives they worship none but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and find success here and in hereafter. Let me then move on to the process that affects this change. It is common knowledge. It is agreed by great scholars, academics, professors, researchers. All of them are almost unanimous in identifying this process as the education process of a child in its widest sense. Education in its broadest sense is the one process by which each of us becomes the person that we are, our own distinctive way of life, our characteristics that distinguish us from each other. It is a process that we go through, an unending process of acquiring vast batteries of values and beliefs, of skills, items of information. Education is a very process that makes us what we are from what we were and will take us to what we want to become from what we are today. An unending process from the cradle to the grave. Therefore, bringing this back to our, the, the, the item, the theme, we have to see what kind of educational process are we subjecting our children to because the end result will depend directly on the type of education that we provide. Let's move on to creating some of those, let's look, move on to looking at some of those ways that we can evaluate the education of our children. As I said, I want to keep my talk brief to the point. 97% of Muslim children are being educated in state schools. There's only 3%, if that, are being educated in Islamic schools, either private or state-funded. If we analyze the general pattern of education that our children go through, it will help us to make, to analyze this process more clearly, inshallah. Generally speaking, our children go, get up, get ready, and in the morning, off they go to school, where they spend some six hours or so, come back around about half three, four o'clock, tired, they have the tea, and it's time to go to the madrasa, two hours, and they come back, it's dinner time, and a bit of television watching, recreational if there is available, and bedtime. And insofar as the formal education is concerned, that is the type of general pattern that our children on the main follow it. 
If we were to do a qualitative and quantitative analysis of this general pattern and try to find out which institution provides a predominant impact on the lives of our children, which, is in, which institution has the lion's share of the time and has, the, in qualitative terms, the most impact on our children's lives. In other words, who is a clear winner in fashioning what is known as a worldview of our children? And the answer is very clear. If you go to your child's school, a well-resourced school, superiorly, uh, superiority in terms of professionalism, resources, comfortable surroundings, professionally trained teachers, professionally prepared curriculum, and prime time. Fresh in the morning, they go into those schools. Compare that with the madrasas. Tired mind, four o'clock. You try picking up a book after eight hours of work. Inferior surrounding often cramped positions, untrained teachers, although the situation seems to be improving, but we're far from it. Hardly a agreed syllabus. No new techniques. And just two hours. And within those two hours, the student-teacher contact is hardly two minutes. Takes the sabak as it's known, Go back into your place. So is the madrasa, the Islamic part of the child's education, capable of, A, addressing the worldview formed at school and then dealing with it, neutralizing it if it requires, and putting its own, uh, stamping its own ethos on that child's heart and mind? The answer we have to find out from ourselves. If you look at the state school, 97% of our children go into state schools, and the brothers will be talking in detail. I'm just providing a, a backdrop. If you analyze your school or the school that your child goes to and see is the ethos of that particular school promoting Islam and the values of our noble Prophet Muhammad if it is, alhamdulillah, and by understanding the hadith of the Prophet we can be assured that if it is an Islamic educational environment, then inshallah, our children will remain on the fitrah. Or is the school ethos of a Christian nature, is it of a Jewish nature, or is it of a secular nature, for whichever ethos prevails in that school, will play a dominant part in fashioning that child's worldview, in fashioning the value system of that child, in fashioning the very belief system of that child. Parent responsibility, sending them to an, or subjecting them to an educational environment, hence the process will bring up a product Either he'll remain or she will remain on the fitra, 
or she will be changed depending on the educational ethos of the school that we send our children to. The answers are very clear. And we can see the writing is on the wall. What, what kind of thinking, what kind of worldview on the main, the state schools are fashioning in the hearts and minds of Muslim children. It is perhaps for this reason that over 50% of the Jewish population, school-going population, goes to Jewish schools. And I'm sure you know the hundreds and, or the thousands of Christian schools that are there catering for the education of Christian children. We have only got 3%. I leave that for my brothers and sisters to evaluate for themselves. The pros and cons of state and Islamic schools should be looked at with a backdrop of these principles, which, as I said, are based on the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ and the sources of Quran and Sunnah. And I leave opportunities for us to, for you to raise questions and discuss. I'm sure I will learn a great deal from my more knowledgeable brothers and sisters here. Let me then come to the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran, where he says, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu quu anfusikum wa ahlikum nara wa quuduhan nasa wal hijara. O you who believe, save yourselves and your children from the fire. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would never have commanded us to do that if He had not given us the capacity and the capability. Not in the nature of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be unjust. He has given us the capacity, the capability, the understanding. And then He has commanded us to, to save. And the only way that you can save is to ensure that our children's education, or rather we subject our children into an education environment that will continue to develop the fitra, the belief system, and the values brought by the Prophet and that we protect them from the schools, the educational ethos that will take them away from those jewels that we find in the Quran and the words of the Prophet ﷺ. With those few words, I pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that may He give us a better understanding of how we can help ourselves our children, our brothers and sisters, and their children, and the society, and guide them towards having the wonderful, noble values brought by our Prophet ﷺ, and protecting them from those values which are eternally failure for all of us all. Okay, we'll take a short break for a moment. Um, if you stay seated, um, we'll be back with you shortly.
الحمد لله رب العالمين الصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين Brother Chair, Respected Ulema, Brothers, Sisters, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I will once again repeat uh, our deep appreciation that uh, this conference has organized this very timely topic. And alhamdulillah, it's a three sessions, so we are going through different areas in different times. My area of discussion is the pros and cons of Islamic schools. Brother Dr. Muqaddam has mentioned a number of aspects when he compared between the Islamic schools and the state schools. First of all, I want to make it clear that when you talk about Islamic schools, and if you want to compare like with like, we talk about Islamic schools that are full-time day schools, and they could be schools or madrasa, whatever language we, we choose. Recently, we decided to have a sort of Islamic school in Islamic Mosque, London Muslim Center. The term madrasa and school, they are confusing because uh, madrasa is an Arabic word. Forget about that. But in our subcontinental culture, Madrasa is something that gives traditional Islamic training to produce ulema or scholars or imams. So we talk about schools or madrasa full-time, not evening schools or weekend schools, although they are a matter of discussion. And Dr. Mukaddam has rightly mentioned that those evening schools and weekend schools, lack of resources, then being tired for the whole day, then uh, then come from a different environment to another environment with a different type of approach, with different type of teachers. How much they are effective is a, a, a matter of good discussion. So there are two types of Islamic schools from that sense. One is the traditional madrasa to produce Islamic scholars. If we talk about these schools in this country from 1970s, alhamdulillah, they have come in and they have produced a lot of hufas, Islamic scholars, those who are the imams of different mosques. And in the month of Ramadan, we see many of them, alhamdulillah. And the community leaders, Islamic personalities, at that time, more than 30 years ago, thought seriously on that. And alhamdulillah, they made quite success in this area. But times are passing, and there's a big debate on education, whether traditional schooling or what we call second, uh, secular schooling should be totally separate. I think in the past when Islam was a, was a civilization, everything was blended. But for whatever reason, it's a long discussion, things were bifurcated. So that's one type of schools. The other type of schools is the Islamic schools to produce Muslims with good Islamic background. And I think the movement started since 1980s. And as mentioned in another session that Brother Yusuf Islam and some of the pioneers who initiated this. And there had been a lot of struggle for some of these schools to be state-funded only in 1990s. During the end of 1990s, some of them were given voluntary aided status, government funding. 
the question might arise, why do you need Islamic schools? It could be a very naive question, but we know that 97 to 97 out of half children go to secondary schools, and we know the difficulties. The secular education in a consumer promiscuous society, the sort of education our children get, along with the others, whether that's enough. The issue that comes in is the identity and security of Muslim, Muslim children. We have discussed that in the last session. Identity is a major issue. Home environment, community environment, then school, in the society. Two types of things. And the children are pulled into two different directions. If the family environment and the community is stronger, then children could overcome the, the pull that's in the state school in the society. If it's the other way around, then we miss out. And we have seen this in the British Muslim society. The drugs, the gang fighting, a lot of other social diseases prevalent in the Muslims, Muslim communities. Although there are many other factors, but schooling is one of the factors. Then we know that there is racism, Islamophobia, and prejudice, etc., in state schools. Open racism, hidden racism, prejudice, discrimination, Islamophobia, especially after 9-11. Islamophobia has become the trend of many Western, Western countries. This is not exception. Then comes the amoral culture and values in state school. There is no morality. Everything is relative. We call it a moral maze. There is no one single truth in this postmodern society, in the philosophy. So people who are educated in this environment, they get confused. Where is the truth? And the injustices that is seen around the world is because of this moral maze, moral relativism, and also the underachievement of Muslim children in state schools. I mentioned that in the last session, that Chinese children have the highest GCSE results, 5, 8, A, A to C, more than 70%. Indians have more than 60%. Average British has 53-54%. Bangladeshis and Pakistanis are the worst in the GCC results. And that has effect, knock-on effect, in their A-level results and in the university education. Because the state schools fail to provide this, because the society is the way that it is, Muslim elders, community leaders, thought seriously that they need Islamic schools. Now, there are more than 100 Islamic schools. But the, the way those schools are run, Brother Mukaddam has mentioned some of them, under resource, not so qualified teachers, because qualified teachers with NQT status need a lot of salary. And schools that are funded by the community, 
he started mega resources. So Muslim, Muslim schools and Islamic schools cannot provide all those facilities. But we have seen the strengths of the Muslim schools. Alhamdulillah, all, in fact, all Muslim schools produce better results than the state schools, in spite of all the difficulties, challenges, constraints. We know that they have every, above average educational achievement of Muslim children. Better behavior and discipline in the schools. Those who teach in inner city secondary schools, state, state, state schools, they know what difficulties teachers face, parents face, the community face. But Alhamdulillah, in the Muslim schools, I'm not saying that everything is milk and honey, but there are, there is relatively better discipline and behavior. And that's because parents have a purpose in sending their children to the Muslim schools. Community has, ex has, an, ex has an expectation. And the school also is run with Islamic ethos. And of course, there is a generally positive school environment. Although we sometimes hear negative news about Muslim schools, Tower Hamlets, unfortunately, some children come out from a few Muslim schools. And when they come to the state-funded school, for whatever reason, and at the end, they bring some baggage with them that Muslim schools or Islamic schools are not as good as people think. It may be individual situation, it may be, it may be, it may depend on schools. And also there is a relatively balanced national curriculum on Islamic sciences. We know in state-funded state schools, only the national curriculum. Core subjects, foundation subjects, then the other hidden curriculum. And there are there is a bit of religious education, and that's only for information, giving basic information on five religions prevalent in, this, in Britain. Then there's no moral and ethical values embedded in this school. But in Islamic schools, in addition to national curriculum, because that's compulsory, core, core curriculum, there's the Islamic sciences, Tasbid, Quranic Arabic, Islamic, sub, Islamic studies, history, all sorts of things are there. Depending on the type of teachers and the quality of the teachers, Islamic schools teach them. And in madrasa, Islamic madrasa, they, apart from core subjects, they give more importance on some specific subjects. Now let's see what are the weaknesses of the Muslim schools or Islamic schools. As mentioned, poorly resourced. And of course, the lack of availability of qualified teachers. That also depends on the financial situations. Generally poorly organized, because state, state schools are, have, are being run by the people in the educational world for hundreds of years, at least from 1870. See, the organizational skills, the system that they have developed over centuries, over decades, they try to improve upon that. So the organizational skills, proper organization, classroom routine, class routine and everything, they have learned from the system. And there has been inspection over many, many decades. 
But Islamic schools doesn't have the luxury to be well organized. And of course, financial constraints is the major constraints. All these things, plus sometimes unrealistic expectations from parents. Some parents think Islamic schools is the panacea. If children go to Islamic schools, they will be the angels. Not exactly in the same thing, manner, but people, some people have this high expectation. They simply, if you can use the word, dump their children to Muslim schools in the expectation that they would be the good Muslims. On the other hand, they don't realize the difficulties. Parental responsibility at home, these are major issues. Many parents don't simply think on that. That's why DFES has come up with parental, parental schools education within the behavior system in, 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 in schools. Because the society has realized that the children with behavioral difficulties, emotional difficulties, children that remain absent or truants from school or bunk from school, teachers cannot be child-minders. Parents have the responsibility. Up to 16 years of age, parents have to take the responsibility. Parents take the responsibility. And last year, one English mom was taken, was, was thrown into jail for three months. And education social work, work with those who have this attendance problem. And there are behavior support teachers, special educational needs teachers. These are, they are for the state-funded schools, but Muslim schools don't have this luxury to accommodate, accommodate these areas. Now let's come into the broader issues for Islamic schools. These are very broad issues that have that come up, especially after the 2001 uh, disturbances in, the, some, in some northern cities where some Muslim or Asian youth took part in one of the riots, probably for the first time, especially the Muslim youth. And there had been a lot of reports on that, Cantal report and other reports. And unfortunately, many politicians or many people in the establishment tried to point finger to the faith schools, especially the Muslim schools or evening schools. Why this is not true, it was not the segregation in the schools, it was the deprivation, it was the prejudice, it was the racism, that was the main reason for this disturbance. But I think we need to accept that inclusion in the society or working with the whole society should be an issue for the Muslim, Muslims. Because Islam talks about social interaction. Islam talks about social responsibility. Islam talks about the whole of humanity. Muslims have been sent for the benefit of the humanity. So if the Muslims have to do some benefit to the humanity, they have to be part of the society. They have to interact. They have to engage. 
Muslim schools or state schools, whatever school it may be, children have to see the broader picture, have to have the confidence and pride in their own culture. That's, that's, that's the basic essential thing. But at the same time, they have to see other people as human beings, creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Unless this ethos is incorporated in Islamic schools, as some people say that Muslim schools or religious schools, faith schools could be ghettoized, that there, there is some truth in it. Islamic schools have to address this issue. While Islamic sciences are there through national curriculums, through other environment, environments, Muslim children have to learn how to live in a pluralist society. Then comes the issue of development of social and life skills in a pluralist society. Social skill and life skill are essential for a young human being to be part of the society, to, those, to do things in, in their life in future. It's, it's not only good to, to become a doctor, engineer, or solicitor, or a professional. It's also important how to interact with other people. Because Islam is a matter of social service. These social skills and life skills are important. I think one of the most important features of the Western education system, the whole of Western education system, is from the very nursery life to secondary education, children are given life skills and social skills, which in the Muslim countries lack. Most of the Muslim countries' education depends on rote learning, doing good results in the exams. That's it. Also, the issue that parents have a major responsibility even if they send their children to Islamic schools. The children are born and brought up in, the, with the, with, in a family. Family remains a school or university for at least three years or five years. This university, this school, give children the basic understanding of their life, of Islam, of the society. Then when they en encounter or they get exposure to the wider society, if they are well prepared, then they can succeed. So it's not enough that we send our children to Islamic schools, only two and a half or three percent Muslim children. Parents have a responsibility. And for parental responsibility, Parenting education is important. One doesn't have to be a parental expert, but one has to have basic knowledge how to raise children in Islam, how to make good human beings in the society. Then obviously, there are a lot of areas for improvement. As I mentioned that Islamic school is not a panacea, if we don't address the following issues, then Islamic school could become very ghettoized. Islamic school could become very secluded. And Islamic schools could produce people with intolerance. 
with lack of feeling for the other human human beings. So, when Muslims want to establish an Islamic school, or the Islamic schools must have the aim of the school clear, what do they want to produce? Do they want to produce traditional Islamic scholars to just lead Juma prayers or Tarawi prayers? Or do they want to produce Muslims who would be the Mujahidun of the 21st century in the most sophisticated, worldly sophisticated Western polarized society? That has to be clear to the teachers, to the governing body, to the community. Unless this aim and objectives are clear, then Islamic schools will falter in the middle, somewhere. They have to address the issue of resources. I'm not saying that we probably can compare now in our present financial and social situation, compare with the state, state schools. They are highly resourced, there are lots of other things supporting state schools. But at least we have to have minimum resources to give the minimum feeding of our teachers so that they can teach children with satisfaction, basic satisfaction. I know many teachers, Muslim teachers, professional teachers, those who are professionals teach in the second state schools. They don't come because salary is too low. So salary, other facilities, the school environment, classroom facility, everything is important. And also the teaching quality. In the schools, Teachers get five days statutory for their internal training, inset, inset. Alhamdulillah, Muslim schools, Islamic schools in this country are, are doing that. We have to make this training relevant for Islamic schools, the ethos. Organization of the school. Parental, parental involvement. Parents have to involve themselves in helping out Muslim schools. If they have expertise, I know there are many people, educationists, or in different areas, and alhamdulillah, many Muslim parents are helping that. But it has to be an issue within the community that we have to make Islamic schools a success. Of course, we have to make our other schools state schools where our children go ex-access as well. But my talk is about Islamic schools. And also we must address the issue of social inclusion or the opposite social seg segregation. Muslims are people who interact, who engage, who work with other people so that their culture, their values, their character, their ethos, their philosophy, is diffused into the wider society. Only then, Islam will ever remain a vibrant way of life. Only then people will be attracted. So what we need in this society are people who would be first-class social people and first-class people with Islamic character. If these two things are blended together, only then, inshallah, we can change the pace of the society. We can bring some sanity 
in the world today because we, are, we have lost a lot of sanity. The world humanity has lost a lot of sanity because of many reasons. That's a different discussion. And I think this is a big challenge for us. Our last session this evening um, is from Dr. Abdul Hayi. Um, if there's time after the session, then we can ask some questions. Respected Chair, brothers and sisters, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Before I uh, begin, can I find out one very small thing which is bothering me, I'm afraid? How many brothers were uh, here when we did the last session? Can you put up your hand, please? So, people without hands were not here. Alhamdulillah. So you went to the last session to find out about marriage. Now you find out about bringing up children, inshallah. Okay? Um, the topic I'm going to talk about is getting the best out of state schools. What is our rights and what is our responsibilities? Now, why am I talking about getting the best out of state schools? Why am I not talking about Muslim schools? And I think one brother did pose that question earlier on. And I think the question has been already answered in the sense that if we look at the statistics, more than 95% of Muslim children attend state schools. It's 3 to 5% figures vary enormously from person to person attend Islamic schools. And I think if we look at the, the figures, they're not that unrealistic. I think it's highly unlikely that you or I will be alive to see more than 80% of Muslim children attending Muslim schools. It's highly unlikely, but Allah knows best. So the context and the framework is that the vast majority of Muslim children do attend state schools, and it is in our best interest to make sure that we get the best out of those schools. But there's Another thing, which some of you may find a bit controversial, especially people who like asking questions, will definitely not let me get away with this that easily. But I also have very strong conviction, and I want to argue this case. Is it really necessary for Muslims to go to Muslim schools? Let me pose the question in a different way. Pretend the early Muslims, after our Prophet decided, we're not going to interact with any other communities. We're just going to stay with ourselves. Would we be here today? I know I wouldn't. Because my forefathers became Muslims from Hindus. Because the other people went into their community and interacted with them. Had they not done that, the community that I come from would never have received the message of Islam. So my question to you is that if we all try to establish Muslim schools, please don't get me wrong, I'm all for Muslim schools. I think it's fantastic to establish Muslim schools. But if we all started sending our children just to Muslim schools and had no interactions with any other communities 
and our children didn't have interaction with other communities, then probably the dawah work would be hampered. I think people are buying it, so alhamdulillah. I can't see anyone going, you know, overly mad with my suggestion. So there is another idea that sending children to state school, if we can do it properly, could become a form of dawah, inshallah. And the other thing is that getting the best out of any school is the same. Now, I'm very naive. The example I use sometimes are very ridiculous. But I use them anyway. How many of you have a credit card? Or a switch card? Or a Delta card? Or an American Express? Does it matter which machine you put it through? You can go to Abbey National, put your card, get the money out. As long as the money comes out, that's what you are after. Or do you sort of wait around and say, well... That's NetWest. I'm looking for HSBC. Yes? No. You go to a machine, put the card. As long as the money comes out, you're satisfied. So, as long as you can get the best out of any school, you need key skills. And those key skills of getting the best out of any schools, whether they're Muslim schools or state schools or nursery schools, primary schools, are often the same. So, therefore, if we can learn how to get best out of one system, we can get best out of all systems. But there's one caution, and that is, the things that I'm going to say in the next 10, 15 minutes are quite dangerous. Dangerous in the sense that I'm making very, very big assumptions and making gross generalizations. You know, I'm not looking at different types of flowers, I'm just saying they're all bushes. And I'm doing that because of time, and I'm doing that because of the nature of the discussion, because otherwise we will not get through this. You will be here for a long time. Now, you may be here for a long time, but we can't, unfortunately. So we have to proceed a bit faster. What are the rights and responsibilities of parents? Now, parents have a number of rights. The first right for parents come under the law. What does the law say? And there are some rights from that respect. The second category of rights for parents and carers come from guidance material that are produced by various government or non-government departments. For example, the Department for Education and Skills or the Curriculum and quali sorry, Qualification and Curriculum Authority or the Office for Standards in Education. And there's about 10 or 12 different types of Kwango organizations that produce guidelines Although they are not law, they provide parents with some rights and responsibilities. There's also policies that local education authorities sometimes adopt, or individual governing bodies may adopt, that provides the parents some rights or responsibilities. For example, your children could be attending a school where the governors have decided that they will allow you to go on holiday for up to 20 days. You could also attend another school next door to it where the governing body has decided they will not allow more than 10 days. And both would stick, although with a bit of hassle, if it went to court. So you have some rights under that. And then you have something in the profession we call good practice. You know, what it means, don't ask me because I don't know. It's an orthodox. You know, you say good practice. Let's adapt it. Green chairs are nice. 
Let's forget about the red chairs, get all green chairs. And some schools do that. You know, mad though it is, even some governments do that. They say, we don't like this color for English. Let's change the color of English. And everything has to change. And the government has done that a number of times. It's like the buses. I don't know what color buses you have in Leicester, but sometimes they have big problem with what color the buses should be. Now, under the law, what rights do parents have? The first right that you have as a parent is to choose a school for your child or to educate your child at home. Now, if you choose a school, you can choose any school. Whether you get it or not is a different story, but you have the choice. Yeah, you don't have anything else. You have a choice to choose. If places are available, you'll get it. Sometimes it doesn't work that way. Sometimes people don't get the school of their choice. You have the right to choose to educate your child at home. Now, there are lots of myths around educating at home. What the law says is that you don't have to follow any curriculum. You don't have to be a teacher. However, you have to educate your child according to their age and if they have any special needs. And if there is any doubt, then the local authority could submit an order to you to show that you are doing your job properly. And there are a lot of parents who do choose to educate their children at home rather than at school. But from personal experience, one thing you do need, which the law doesn't say, is lots of patience and time. You have a right to receive information about your child's education from the school. There are certain things which are legal requirements. There are some things called Governor's Annual Report to Parents. You must get that every year. That should have about 14 different types of heading, including the budget, how the money was spent. It should tell you how many teachers were recruited, how many teachers left the school, tell you about attendance, about standards, about the governing body, about holiday dates, about special educational needs, about extended leave, and these are legal requirements. It must say those things. If it doesn't, it's breaking the law, and the school is not doing its responsibility properly. You have a right to obtain report on your child's education. You can see the teacher as many times as you like. It's not like one of those arrangements where after you saw three times, you have to pay. You can see the teacher as many times as you like. You can see the head of departments, you can see the head teacher. If needed, you can even see the uh, a representative of the governing body. You have a right to attend governing body meeting with permission from the chair of governor. I will come back to that, inshallah. You have a right, the school has to ask you to give consent if they're doing any extracurricular activities or um, certain non-statutory curriculum. So if they're going to teach, for example, sex education, they have to ask you first whether you want your child to participate or not. And you have a right to say yes or no. If they're taking your child somewhere, they, they will ask you. You have a right to say yes or no. You don't have to say yes. You don't have to say no either. You have a choice. It is your right. You have a right to be informed about any meetings involving your child. 
If your child is in trouble or if they've done anything good and if there's any meeting involving your child, if someone like Dr. Bari from the LEA as an advisory teacher is going to go and see your child, you have a right to know about this. And your school must inform you about that. But I'm not really interested in this, to be honest. I want to go back, I want to go to some other responsibilities which are much more meatier and I'm sure you will enjoy them. The first thing is you have a right to be consulted on something called home school agreement. How many brothers here know about homeschool agreement? Alhamdulillah. It's about 1%. Homeschool agreement is a legal document that all schools have to produce. It became legal in 1998. And it's a, it's a, it's a contract between you and the school. The good thing about this contract is that if the school breaks that contract, they are liable for prosecution. But if you break the contract, the school can't do anything. And the contract is about important thing, about the curriculum, homework, attendance, all sorts of things. So if you don't know about it, please go to your school, your child's school, and say, can you please give me a copy of the homeschool agreement or homeschool contract? Very, very important. What is fascinating about the homeschool contract is that it's got to be reviewed after a certain period of time. And parents have to be consulted. Now you may say, I don't know anything about that. Of course you don't. And there is a reason for that. And I will come back to that later on. You have a right to participate in school activities. As I mentioned before, you have a right to attend governing body meetings. You have a right to stand for a parent governor. If there's any sorts of meetings in the school involving the parents, any sort of consultation about school aims, you have a right to be there. And there are details of when those acts were developed. You have a right to withdraw your child from certain aspects of the curriculum, like collective worship. If you don't want your child to participate, you can withdraw them. If you don't want your child to participate in sex education, you can withdraw them. So there are certain parts of the curriculum that you can withdraw your children from. The other thing you have, you have a right to complain to the governing body. That act came into effect in 2002. Before that, it's only the local education authorities which needed to have a procedure. But now all school must have a procedure of how you need to complain. Now how many people know how to complain? One person, alhamdulillah, two people. Now, I'll tell you. What's the point of having a car if you don't know how to drive? Nothing. You know? You can have the best of schools in your doorstep. But if you don't know how to get the best out of the system, you may not be able to do it. These are the law. I want to go to something else. What are the practical strategies? You know, how... Let's say I'm a new parent. You know, just become a father. All excited. Couple of years gone. Child's three, put their names down on the waiting list, got them into a school place. Four, alhamdulillah, they call and say, bring your child in, I take my child in. What do I do now? Relaxed. No, there are certain things we can do. The first thing we need to do is to get involved with the school. And I mean involved. I think I've mentioned in the last session, we should not see these state schools as their school. It's our schools. It's our money. It's our children. We have to be involved. How do you get involved? 
Now, when we talk about involve, I get a bit um, emotional about it. Because I'm quite passionate about this issue. You know? Tell me, in which relationship can you say that people are very close to each other? Anyone? Parents, maybe. Anyone else? Marriage? Anyone else? You can shout. Close contact. Now, it's amazing. You know, it's amazing. The relationship that is very close is people that you are in contact with all the time. Sometimes, some other uncle may be more lovable to you than your own dad. Sometimes another brother can be more brotherly to you than your own brother. Why? Because you are in contact with them all the time. Some of us want to get involved in school, but the school doesn't see our face once in a blue moon. You know? I, I have been fortunate to see situations where Muslim brothers would only come to the school when there is a governor election. I want to be a school governor. Who are you? I don't even know who they are. They don't even know who they are. You know? That's their involvement. Now what do I mean by meaningful contribution? I don't mean go and complain. You, you know, you're doing this to my child. I want this and this. Get involved. Do something. All schools have jobs that needs doing. And you know what is really unfortunate? I don't see any Muslim brothers or sisters getting involved in a meaningful way. I'll give you practical examples because I would really want to make this down-to-earth session. In schools, in Tower Hamlets, some parents say, we want Eid presents for our children. You give Christmas presents, we want Eid presents. So schools buy Eid presents. Then say, can you please come and wrap the presents up? They say, no, this is not our job, this is your job. They don't have the time to wrap the Eid presents. That's the involvement, you know? In Ramadan, I've been, you know, personally involved with this. In Ramadan, there's a tradition of sending children home. In one school, when I took over, I decided to keep the children. I was brave, you know, very energetic. Oh, I'm going to keep these children. I kept them for two days and realized how difficult it was to do my job and look after the children on the side. So I said to the parents, can you help me out? Can one of you come for just half an hour each day? They said, of course we can. No one turned up. One auntie came for a day and then said, but I have to go. I've got shopping. You know? So those are the involvement. We don't go for meaningful involvement and contribution. There has to be effective networking amongst the parents themselves. If I asked you, brothers, sisters, you send your children to school, how often do you talk to other parents? How often do you ask them, how are you? Who's your child? Or do you only go to them when there's been a clash between their child and your child? You know, I've been in position, and I said that before, where parents are blocked out from the school. I've been in position where teachers have encouraged Muslim parents to stand on governor's election so that they don't get through. They said, let's see how many Muslim parents we can get. Well, at one time, we got nine people standing for one position, all Muslims. 
They didn't even think. They did not even think that our votes will be split in nine and there's another Christian person who will go through in one go. There's no networking. There's no communication. Afterwards, I said to them, I said, look, how could you do this disaster? They said, I didn't know he was standing. He didn't tell me. When I talked to him, he said, how dare he stands? I am the Murubi. If he wants to stand, he should have asked me first. So I say, I don't want to get involved in this politics. I'll stay out. I don't understand this. There's no communication. The only communication is when there is problem. <coughs> we also have to know what is our priorities, what is essential and what is desirable. And also, I've, I've had the luxury of experiencing realistic. Once I had one governor who came to my school. I wasn't there. He stopped everyone from eating mushroom, saying, Wallahi, it's haram, don't eat. You know? I said to him, when did mushroom become haram? He said, it may not be haram in your country, but it's haram in Bangladesh. Now, those are the priorities. We don't talk about whether the children are praying, whether the children have water facilities in the toilets. We don't talk about important things. We talk about small things. You know, sometimes we make a big fuss if the teacher took the children to visit a church, to look at the building. What's wrong with visiting a church as a building? I don't see anything wrong. Children see churches every day. There's nothing to make a fuss about. What we need to make a fuss about is when our children are doing assembly and then bowing in front of their parents. Because it's shirk. You know, it's shirk. There's no question about it. Bowing in front of, children, uh, in front of people is shirk. Going and visiting a church made of bricks is not shirk. So there is differences in terms of what is essential to stop and what is desirable. And sometimes we get them mixed up. And then there's the issue about ownership and responsibility. You know, we have to take the ownership of the school. We can't say it's their school, they will run it the way they like. Some people get involved in governing body. I have the pleasure of being in governing bodies where Muslim governors, they fight to become governors. Once they're governors, they don't turn up anymore. And if they turn, do turn up to meetings, the first thing they say, they walk in and they say, uh, I've got to leave at six. I've got another meeting. That's their first welcoming. You know? Now, with these sort of things, it's very, very difficult to get the best out of the school. So, what do we do? What do we do? The first thing we need to do is we need to establish a dialogue between the teachers and our, ourselves. I think it's very, very important. If you notice, when you drop your child off, notice what the other parents do. I can tell you, as a teacher, I will listen more to a parent who helps out the school when we need help than anyone else. And there are some parents who have enormous power in the school community. Those are the parents who are always there for the school. And unfortunately, the number of Muslim people in that category is very, very minimal. 
Very minimal indeed. Who, who takes that role? It's the socialist. It's the Christian people who take up that role. You have to keep up to date with relevant information and changes. And if you remember, at the beginning I mentioned, I'll come back to that. You know when your children take a letter home and say, Dad, letter from school. Put it on the side, I'll read it later. We don't read. We don't try to keep up to date. All this information about homeschool agreement, governing body election, consultation on sex education, all this go underneath the computer. And then when our child comes home and says, I've been learning about female and male, we say, Wastaghfirullah, what happened? You know? And I'm not making this up. In Tower Hamlets, we had a big fuss. One person rang me and said, Abdullah, bye. We are in disaster. They're teaching our children this and that and everything. I said, you are a governor. Where were you? He said, do I have the time to read everything? You know? So that's the, that's the thing. You have to keep up to date. You have to talk to your child. And I, I must say, some of us are very good at that. But most of us need to do a bit more. Anytime we talk to our child is when they've done something wrong. You know? And, and I used to be like that. Whenever my dad called, I used to think, what have I done now? There must be something. You know? It shouldn't be like that. It should be quite different. And you have to be available. If the school needs help, I'll give you a practical example. In my school, there was a, um, this, is a this is a very practical and typical example. There's a pathway to the school. And some bushes have come across and closed the pathway during the summer, a couple of years ago. I had one Bangladeshi uncle coming in shouting, you know, what do you think this is, this country? Go and cut that bush now. You know, otherwise I will sue you. It came to my eye. I have three or four other parents with push chair lining up saying, we couldn't push the child, it was coming onto the face. An English lady who lived nearby went home got her gardening thing, and while they were complaining to me, she done it, finish. You know? While they were shouting, they, she came and said, it's all sorted, come and see. I didn't ask her. I didn't ask her. But, she has the power that no other Muslim parents have. If she came to me and asked, requested me to do something, I will be obliged, because she's always there. But we don't have Muslim parents like that. And we need Muslim parents like that. Then we can change our school and we can make it better. You know, if you say, I've mentioned that before, we're going for a visit, the first thing they say is, is it Thorpe Park or Chessington? In other words, if it's fun, we are coming. If it's work, we're not available. Yeah? Now, I'm going to move very quick because I know time is very constrained. Talking to other parents is very, very important about your ideas and your concerns. If you have, I had one situation where uh, my, in my school, children used to go swimming at the age of 10. Now, at age 10, some children could be balag, and they shouldn't be going swimming. But unfortunately, it was happening. Now, parents did not talk amongst themselves. I only had one parent complaining all the time. And his 
thing was he came to me and said, I want to withdraw my child from swimming. I said, why? He said, I don't want my child doing swimming. I want to withdraw. I said, you can't withdraw. He said, I want to withdraw. Then he wrote a letter. Then he made a complaint. All he needed to do is get 10 or 12 parents. Because we did change it afterwards, alhamdulillah. We, we, we swapped swimming to seven-year-olds. It was good for the school as well. But because parents don't talk to each other, they don't share their ideas and concerns, sometimes school don't listen to them. You have to work with each other rather than working against each other. In Muslim communities, we have a tendency. We have a big tendency of trying to always do my thing rather than collective things. And we have to avoid that situation. We have to help each other in practical ways. And I'm telling you, you know, sometimes parents are ill. Sister is in hospital. Who's going to bring the child? We don't do that. But you know, in some schools, there are people like the one I said, cut the bush. We'll keep an eye. Who is expecting a baby and will say, when you go into hospital, I'll bring you a child. Without being asked. You know, practical, small things. Making sure the children cross the road safely. Making sure if a child is knocking on the door and the door is not being opened, you take them into your house and say, you know, sit here while your mom comes from shopping. Small things like this does not exist in our society, in our, at least in the community I come from. You know, we become more individualistic than the individualistic country here. And we shouldn't be because we are Muslim. Our characteristics should be totally opposite. And we have to target our priorities. We can't fight all the battles. It's not possible. We have to decide which war we're going to fight and which we're going to compromise. Then, inshallah, we will win. But if we start fighting everything, it will be a mix and there will be no victory, just disaster. And the last thing about ownership and responsibilities, we have to adhere to school policies. Some policies may be against Muslims, but I still strongly feel we have to. The reason why we have to is that there is a procedure involved in changing that policy. And we can follow that. If we don't like certain policy, we should try to change that policy. What's the point of opting out? You may be able to opt out your child. What about the 99% of other parents? They can't do it. You know, there are examples in Tower Hamlets where parents have gone to their head teacher and said, look, this year Ramadan is early, we want the school to finish half an hour early. If you do that, you will have our support. Head teacher has turned around and said, well, in that case, you have to bring your children 15 minutes earlier. Fine. And it has worked. What's the point of saying, my child will not come to school for the month of Ramadan because he can't break his fast? It's an easy way out. Whatever we do, we have to change the policies. We have the right, we have a responsibility. And I think I've mentioned that earlier, we have to keep a balance between complaints and acknowledgement. You know, if we make one complaint, I think we should make five acknowledgements. Then the person we complain to will listen. Otherwise they will think it's a, you know, fundamentalist Islamic parent. Always this, that, 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 only complaints. Never says anything good. 
And even if you, in your personal life, if someone only, you know, tells you, that dress doesn't suit you, it's too big for you, that beard is too long for you, you will not like that person. You know, you want people to give you compliment as well. So, compliment is very, very important. And the last thing, we have to avoid the situation about them and us. Because them and us is very, very problematic. Very, very problematic. It's not them and us. It's us. And it's our children. And I think, concluding everything, yes, it is difficult. You know, not all schools are as supportive as we would like them to be. But life isn't that supportive. You know, if we think about life, life is quite hectic. It's ups and downs. But I think the most important thing for me is that you have to be inside the system, not outside. Why? Because you can shout. You know, let's give you an example of football. I'm sure some of you like football. Yeah? If you're not in the field playing football, it doesn't matter how much you scream, nothing will happen. You can't change. You can't produce a goal by screaming and shouting. You can shout your head off, but nothing will happen. It's the players on the field who can change the score. And if you want to change, you have to be inside. You cannot shout from outside. And this is not a compromise. This is not a compromise. It's a targeted intervention. It's an intervention of achieving the aims and objectives. Because we will never be able to produce enough Muslim schools for our children to go to. But alhamdulillah, we are well known for producing good children. And we have to make sure these good children receive good education. As brother said earlier, because education is the key that changes a human being from what they are to what they will be. So may Allah accept what we've said and bless us with good children and bless us with making sure that those children get the best of education in this world which makes it clear for them to, to be a good Muslim and enjoy life and enjoy akhirah inshallah. Jazakallah khair. Okay, I'm aware that uh, we're slightly overrun. Um, perhaps we could just answer two very quick questions. Uh, the first is, um, can you be a school governor even if you don't have a child at the school? You want to answer? Okay. You can be a school governor even if your child is not at school. There are four categories of governors. Depending on what type of school it is, there could be five categories. There's the parent governors, for which you must be a parent or the legal guardian of a child who attends the school. There's something called local education authority governors. For that, you don't have to be a parent. You just nominate yourself to the local education authority and say, I would like to be a governor in X school. And if they have a place, they will inshallah consider you. There is also something called co-opted governors. If you are really involved with the school, they have a category of co-opted governors. They could co-opt you as a governor. Then there's another category, depending on what type of school it is, they sometimes take representative from uh, religious organization or representation. So they may be looking for a Muslim governor. And you could be a governor as well. All right, I think we're out of time now.
Uh, we break for half an hour or so, um, and then we'll return for part two of the seminars.